Amen. Thank you, Marcus, Aaron. Don't forget August 13, Marcus will lead us in a night of worship as well. I imagine Aaron might be there as well, as well as others. Um, so mark your calendars for sure for that time. Uh, powerful time. Uh, then earlier in that week, August 11 and 12, Global, Global Leadership Summit, we'd love for you to all be a part of that. You find all the information about those things on our church website um, or go to uh, uh, forestlakechurch.org. Um, good to be with you this morning. Good to be back at the bridge. Seems like I've been out a bit, but um, really, really pleased to be back and to be uh, with our bridge family. Um, we're kicking off a series, new series. Um, it's actually more of a mini-series than a full-blown, some of our longer series, but you'll catch on to what we're talking about um, over the next several weeks. Um, but again, good to be back in this place. Good to worship with you this morning. Thank you for singing. It's always, it's always hard to come up as a speaker and, and uh, transition from where you're just singing and, and praising God and worship, and then I have to kind of gather myself and, and get ready to, to, to deliver scriptures. So um, uh, pray with me, and uh, then we'll dive right in. Father God, it's good to be in this place. It's good to gather with these people, with your people. And I pray, Father, that we would become fully aware of your deep and profound and passionate love for each and every one of us. And may that be, may that be the thing that compels us to worship you with everything that we have. Despite all the junk that happens around us and despite all the enemy's attacks against us, we are fully convinced of your love for us. And in that love we overcome and in that love we win. So, Father, be present in these moments now as we open your word. We thank you, we praise you, in Christ's name, amen, amen. So, if I were to go to your house, there's a good chance I would find on display there some picture frames. You may have noticed a few that we have around today. And those frames contain stories. They are the stories of your life and your loves, the stories of you and your family, your adventures, your good times, your events and special occasions, your weddings and birthdays and such. We might say that those are photos of your pets, your passions, and your people, right? If you don't have a picture of your pet up in your house and you have a pet, there's something wrong with you. What's in those frames tell a story, though, a story of your life and your loves. Now, we are a church. We're a church and we believe we're telling the most compelling story that there is. We also have some frames. We have frames and they're not so much hung on our walls as much as they're embedded in our hearts and in our souls. But within those frames, we are attempting to tell the story of the life and the loves of Jesus Christ the most compelling figure to ever walk the face of the earth. And if we're telling the story well, the people around us discover that it's not so much about us, the storytellers, the Christians, if you will. It's actually so much more about this Jesus, this Jesus of the Bible. Our frames represent essential teachings of the Bible. 
In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is the community of faith we belong to, we call them the statements of belief, or the 28 fundamental beliefs. They are doctrines. And the, 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 the original language, the Greek word for doctrine or doctrines, is the word didaskilia. Didaskilia. It makes us all sound very important when we throw out Greek words, right? Like really smart Bible people. So use that on your friends this week. My church has didaskilia. We have doctrines that, we, that we've decided are, are important to our church. These are kind of the foundations of our faith. They give us guidance on how to go about living out our faith in real time. And they're not so much a creed. They're not so much a creed in which we demand everyone to believe precisely the same way. And if you don't, we kind of kick you out. No. That's something unique to us as Seventh-day Adventists. We, we, don't, we don't demand that you agree on all the minute little details of every specific doctrine. And if you don't, we, we try to exclude you or kick you out. We actually have some freedom. Because what we hold as our creed is actually the Bible. And what we know about the Bible is that some of us are going to see things, especially when you get down to the details, slightly different from the way we see. But in, in general, we agree on the big picture, right? In general, we agree on the big picture, on the truthful and biblical interpretations that we all kind of come together on, and that these are essential to us as Christ followers and believers. Now, some of these teachings are central and some are more periphery. Now, that's where we get in the fights, right? Some people say, no, no, this should be absolutely central and most important. And others say, no, no, that's a periphery issue when it comes to Bible doctrine. And so we go back and forth over that and we get into conflicts and that's where people get mad and talk about each other's mothers and stuff like that, right? That's, that doesn't happen in church. Nobody talks about that. But it's true Doctrines are central to us. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks, a mini-series, talking about these frames or these teachings of Scripture. Now, what's most important, what's absolutely essential for us, particularly in the Seventh-day Adventist church as we talk about our frames, is that as we talk about each one of these fundamental beliefs, the picture and the story that emerges in the midst of every frame the story that is told and the picture that emerges has to be of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. Can I get a bigger amen than that? Ultimately, what we're saying is that if what we teach and what we encourage others to believe doesn't ultimately lead them back to the story of Jesus and all that he has done and his love for you and me, then we have missed the boat. We've told the wrong story. The story always must go back to the beauty and the glory of this Jesus who came and sacrificed himself for us and how he is ready to receive those who want to be in relationship with him. Every biblical doctrine, everything we teach must lead back to that one divine and beautiful truth. Jesus at the center Jesus connected to everything we teach. So whether we're talking about the Sabbath, whether we're talking about what happens when you die, whether we're talking about judgment, whether we're talking about anything, whether it be central or periphery, it all leads us back to the star 
of Scripture, the star of the story, the main point of the whole thing, and that is Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.16, Timothy 3.16 talks about it in this way. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And like any good father, the God, when he talks, when he inspires, when he speaks, he's going to talk about his child. He's going to talk about his son. Right? If I hang around with you long enough and you have children, especially if you have little ones, you're going to talk about your children. In fact, some of you talk about your children so much, people just get sick of it, right? Yes, yes, your child is wonderful, whatever, yeah, yeah, right. So our father... Our father inspired scripture and he knew that we would read it and he knew that the most important person that we could learn about, the most important person we could come to know would be his son. So it's not about you, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. So the Bible says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. And the, the, in some of the other translations of scripture, the word that is used there isn't teaching, it's doctrine. That's the didaskelia word again. It's doctrine. So for rebuking, for correcting, for training, and righteousness. Hang on to that word righteousness. That's going to become very, very important real soon. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we have... We have clarity from Scripture about, about doctrine, about these frames, that they're inspired by God. We can take the Bible and we can look at how it, most, how it most talks about the main focus of the Bible, which is Jesus Christ. So the frame, the frame that we're looking at, or the fundamental belief, or the doctrine that we're looking at this morning, is called the, the experience of salvation. That's what is technically called, if you look at a document, if you go to the Seventh-day Adventist website, uh, Adventist.org, it will say, number 10, fundamental beliefs. What do Adventists believe? Number 10, the experience of salvation. This is what we believe. I call it when the wheels come off. (laughs) That's my version of it. So, to help us get into it, let's use that language. There have been times when you performed well. Right? There have been times when you performed well, when you've done good. You can step back off of a performance, whatever it may be. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's something you had to do for people, whatever. You performed well. You were at optimum level, and it was awesome, and it was good. But then there are times when it doesn't go so well. In fact, it may start out a little shaky, and then it goes from shaky to really, really, really bad. And so when it goes from shaky to really, really, really bad, we say that the wheels have come off. If you play golf, that's something you hear quite often. That's what I hear quite often. Or maybe it's any sport where you as the individual have to perform at a certain level and you don't, whatever happened, you didn't prepare well, you're just not on your game, you just can't seem to get it together and, and you trying to shoot a basket and it's all bricks or you're trying to hit a ball and all you can do is top the ball or you shank the ball you just do not perform up to optimum level and when things go from bad to really really bad where you just kind of shake your head you hang your head and you're like I cannot believe things are so bad Maybe it's an event that you're putting on you're like man I prepared so well I've done everything and just things fall apart the wheels come off. So when I was a kid, I grew up a military brat. 
And all military brats, if you're a military kid, you know, especially if you spend any time on bases, you know how to bowl. You know how to bowl. So I grew up bowling because when you grow up on military bases, there's always bowling lanes, bowling alleys, and you always bowl. It's like you have leagues you belong to and everything. And so I grew up bowling a lot. Even to this day, I kind of like bowling a lot. And uh, I'll never forget, there was a league tournament. And for my age bracket, I was actually pretty good. And there was a tournament, it was like a Saturday, something like that. And my family went, my parents, everybody was like all excited. They expected me to do really, really, really well. And I just was not feeling it, man. I don't know if it was the pressure. Everybody's watching, everybody's looking, they have high expectations. And I bowled so horribly. I think I, I, think I literally bowled like a 70, all right? Some of y'all think, man, I do, that's pretty good. You go, all right? I've seen some of you bowl. It's not pretty. And so, and so you know, I'm bowling gutter balls. Everybody's watching. And my parents could sense that this thing was going really, really bad. But there was nothing they could do to rescue their sons. And the wheels had just come off. It was so, so bad. So bad. I didn't cry much as a kid. But I was crying, man. It was awful. You have experiences where things have gone bad, where things go from bad to worse, where everything falls apart. We say, we use this frame, that the, this, this phrase, we use this, these words to say that the wheels have come off when your performance isn't good. It goes from bad to worse. And it's one thing for us to accept the reality of the fact that we did bad, right? When we just didn't show up, when we just didn't perform well, when our talents just didn't meet the expectations of the day. But what happens when someone else's poor performance affects your life? What happens when someone else shows up and you kind of expect them to kind of do their thing and they don't quite measure up and it goes from bad to worse and it affects your life? What if somebody else, somebody else's performance, bad performance, impacts you. That doesn't seem quite fair, does it? Somebody on your team drops the baton. Somebody on your team who you were counting on, they were supposed to show up, they were supposed to do what they were supposed to do, and they came in, they weren't prepared, they weren't thinking, they weren't in the right mindset, and they blow it for you. Well, here's the thing. One of the first things that the Bible teaches us about this idea of the experience of salvation is that things went from bad to worse. The wheels came off for the first people God created in the garden. The wheels came off. And when the wheels came off for Adam and Eve, they came off for the entire, all of creation. All of humanity, humanity would be impacted by what Adam and Eve would do. Their disobedience... And the fact that their lives came unraveled, that they did not perform up to the standard that God expected of them. Things went south, and they brought all of us down with them. That's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't even seem fair, because you're like, dude, I wasn't even around. And yet, I'm connected to Adam and Eve, and I am seen, I'm seen as the one for which the wheels have come off. In the same way, that's what the Bible teaches. In the book of Romans, go to the book of Romans or watch it on the screens. In the book of Romans, the Bible takes a little bit more time to describe what the impact of their disobedience and their mistake and their sin had on all of humanity. When the wheels came off for them, 
they came off for you and me too. And this is the impact, Romans 5.19 and Romans 5.12. Listen to this. For just as through the disobedience of the one, that's speaking of Adam and Eve. The Bible says one because Adam and Eve were together, they were married, they were one. They were mankind or humankind, if you will. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, right? So also, and this is jumping ahead to the end of the story, but so also through the, dis, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous, right? So because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, when the wheels came off for them, when they fell apart, when their performance didn't meet the standard, guess what? You and I, you and I were aligned with them. We became disobedient sinners in the same way that they did. Romans 5.12 describes it another way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, again, talking about Adam and Eve, humankind, and death through sin. So here's another little piece of it. Not only do we get counted in the same group as Adam and Eve, but the same death problem that they have is the same death problem that you and I have. The penalty for their sin and their disobedience was also passed on to you and me. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in the same way came to all people because all of sin. So here we go. They mess up, and you and I also get credit for messing up. The wheels come off for them, and it affects all of us. So we're all grouped together, and we have this issue we have this situation now of sin and death. So a little bit about sin. You can't talk about the experience of salvation without talking about this idea of sin. Sin, we often think primarily in terms of behavior or sinning or bad things we do. What's really important is to understand that it's more than just a behavior. Our problem is much bigger than just actions or behavior. It's also a condition, right? So we're all infected with this sin thing. It's, it's just kind of become part of who we are. It is terminal. It leads to death. And not just you die. It leads to eternal death, separation from all that is good and pure and holy. And the God of the universe, that is what death is ultimately. It's a condition, that we suffer from. It's terminal. It's not just a behavior. And the thing about the fact that it's, that it's conditional, that, that, that it's a condition that we have, is that it, it's, it's, disrupted, um, it's disrupted everything. So not only is our behavior bad, but, but our hearts are bad too. Not only is our behavior bad, but, but the motivation within is also bad. Our hearts are bad. Our attitude is bad. Um, it's not just that we have this condition, it's the impact of the condition in everything that we are. Our behavior's bad. Our condition is that our attitude is bad as well, or our hearts are bad. So I'll give you a little example. Um, I remember one time when I was probably 14, 15 years old, and uh, my mom was a single mom, so it was very important for me to, to, do my, uh, to do my chores around the house, all right? So, but when you're 14, 15 years old, you go through this period where you talk back to mom or dad, if dad's there. Um, but, so I went through that phase too 
Um, not a smart phase, granted, but there are times when I was sort of not want to do what mom wanted me to do, and I had this little smart mouth like all teenagers do, right? So my mom wouldn't, wasn't having any of that. But anyway, anyway, one time she told me, look, you got to get the leaves raked before you can go do anything. This is fall in Arkansas, lots of leaves. Well, I wasn't dealing with the leaf situation very good. I wanted to go do things with my friends, play basketball, go to a movie, go do something besides rake leaves. That was not fun, nor did it help my social status, right? Mom says, no, you're going to rake the leaves. I'm like, no, Mom, not going to rake the leaves. Okay, so Mom won because I went out to rake the leaves, right? I'm raking the leaves, raking the leaves. My heart's not in it, though. So I come up with this fabulous idea. I can rake the leaves... Or I can just make the leaves disappear, right? Just that way she thinks that the, rake, the leaves are raked. So sure enough, if I could just get the front yard clear, then it would all be good. So I start raking, 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 and I rake, and I scoop everything to the side of the yard. Just big, bold pile. I was supposed to rake the leaves, put them in a bag, make it all look nice and neat, right? No, no, no. I'm just going to get out of sight, out of mind, right? So I rake, 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 and put everything on the side of the house, tuck them nicely back there, and... I'm done, and I go on about my way. I did it. I performed the task that mom wanted me to perform, but I did it with the wrong heart and the wrong attitude. I didn't do it because I wanted to, and I didn't do it because my mother asked me to. I wasn't doing it out of obedience. I was doing it out of obligation, and I wasn't doing it with the right heart. The problem with you and me is not only do we have this sin condition, we also got a bad attitude and a bad heart. God's got to solve that for us. That's why the Bible is always talking about the heart, the heart, the heart. Because God doesn't just want you to obey. He wants you to obey him for the right reason. Not out of obligation, not out of obedience, but out of a heart that is in love with him. That's why he says, if you love me, keep my command. Do it out of a heart of love. So, here, let's keep rolling here because we've got a problem. The problem is sin, and it runs deep. It's a condition with us, and we've got the wrong heart and the wrong attitude. The only remedy, the Bible begins to talk about a remedy. The only remedy that we have is this word righteousness. Remember I told you to hang on to that word, is this idea of righteousness. But what we understand is that our righteousness is dramatically flawed. There's nothing good. The Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We've got the Wrong heart, wrong attitude, we are messed up through and through. So, the Bible comes along in Romans, check this out. Paul talks about our condition. Romans 3, 21 through 24, here's the remedy, this is what it looks like. But now, apart from the law, ah, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. We won't get through this entire verse, but this first sentence of this verse, verse 21, is absolutely money. This is where we want to be. Hang on to this. Romans 3, 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify. So the whole Bible that Paul read testified to the reality of God's righteousness 
Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith. Here it is. This righteousness, which is the remedy for our sin problem, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, right, to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned. We know that. We've all blown it. We all get counted in with Adam and Eve. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by who? Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be, to be received by faith. So there's a lot in there, I know. But basically what we're talking about here is that we have this problem, this real predicament. We can't, we can't solve it by ourselves, and our righteousness isn't good enough. Our performance, our behavior is terrible. The wheels have come off a long time ago. Our attitude and our hearts aren't in the right place. So even though we may do it, we're likely doing it a lot of times for the wrong reason. The Bible describes another way. It's not by the law, because you can keep the law all you want to and still not have it, have what is needed for salvation, for the experience of salvation. So what does it say? Now. But now. Isn't that great? That's a great line. It used to be this way, but now. Used to be this way, but now. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And so Jesus comes along and he begins to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Ultimately, Jesus is the remedy that we need because he would come and he would be obedient. He would be perfectly obedient. And he would come and he'd perform perfectly, flawlessly. And he'd do everything right. And he'd do everything right with the right attitude and the right heart. Because the Bible says that, that he came and he loved us. We sang the song. Yes, he loves us. And it's, it's the type of love that will sacrifice anything, will give anything, will go to a cross and die and be tortured and bleed and, and get spat upon. And every indecent, undignified act that could be done to a human being was done to Christ because he loved you and me. So he had the right heart. He wasn't doing it out of obligation. He was doing it because he was interested in you and me. He liked us. Now, um, how did the sin problem get, get taken care of? Here's the deal. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Jesus is the remedy. And I'm going to illustrate what Jesus did about the sin issue using a little bit of an illustration. So basically what Jesus had to do is he had to come and he had to join humanity. He had to be counted with the people for which the wheels had come off. He had to be, he had to sort of, he had to kind of put on humanity. That's what he did. He came in the flesh. But he had to do more than that. He had to take on sin. The Bible says here that he, uh, he who knew no sin had to become sin for us. So how did he do that? I'm going to use a little illustration using some football jerseys. Because Jesus basically had to come and join our team. And he had to put on the jersey. So Jesus comes. It's not football season, but bear with me, all right? So Jesus comes, and in his perfection and in his wonderfulness, he put on a Dallas Cowboys jersey because that's God's team. Amen? 
So Jesus came and in his perfection and his beauty and his love and his goodness, he came. He was, he, was a, he was a lamb without spot or blemish. So Jesus came, but then he had to, he had to deal with the sin problem. So in order to, to fully identify with us and to qualify as the greatest sacrifice for you and me, he had to come and he had to put on the sin jersey. The Washington Redskins. He had to come, he had to put on the sin jersey. All right? So the sin jersey, I might lose my microphone there. Yep. He had to put on the sin jersey. Am I still on? I hope so. He had to put on the sin jersey. That's how the Bible sort of describes it. And he comes, he dons the jersey so that there is, um, so that he sort of became sin. Now, understand this. He was not a sinner. He never sinned. He came and he gave the greatest performance that could be given. You and I as football fans, we wear these silly jerseys during football season. And we sort of begin to identify with our team. And we think that, hey, man, it's like me. I'm, not, I'm like, that's my team. That's, that's, that's us, you know. When, we, when our team loses, we lose, right? Unlike you and me, though. If we put on this jersey, it doesn't qualify us to go onto the field. It doesn't work that way. But when Jesus came to this earth and he donned humanity and he put on the sin jersey, it qualified him to then go and to live a perfect life and become the perfect sacrifice for his people. Because he loves you and me. See, people argue about this all the time. What, how could Jesus qualify to come and be the ultimate sacrifice? How could he justify people without himself having to first sort of become the one who could justify us? This is the answer. Jesus came, he puts on the jersey, and he lives a flawless life. Unlike you and me, he could go out onto the field and he could be tempted in the same way that you and I are. He could live and, and be attacked and spat upon and treated all kinds of ways and still never sin either in thought or in deed. And it qualified him to become the greatest, the sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. And the way you and I experience salvation, the way that we get free... my mic, sorry. The way that we get free the sin jersey always messes you up. The way that we get free and the way so that the Father, when He sees us, He sees us as His children. The way that the Father, when He looks at us and He sees that we are justified freely by his grace. He doesn't see our performance. He doesn't see our heart or our attitude. He sees that of his son. We've been replaced. We've been substituted. The son, the son is the one who sets us free. From the law of sin and death, he is the one who sets us free. Jesus came, steps into the place, steps into what we deserved, he fulfills everything that needs to be fulfilled in order to take care of us. He solves it. 
We have a problem, it's sin. It runs very deep. The remedy isn't a better performance on your part. You can never do it, and you can never do it with the right heart. The remedy is to let the Jesus of the Bible, through faith, save you. To allow him to become the one who gives the greatest performance, who wins the victory because you couldn't. That's the way the experience of salvation works. It is the story that we want the world to know and to hear about. It's a story that if it's the first time that you are hearing this story, it's a story that you can respond to freely. It's a story about grace and about God's compassion and love towards his people. It's a, it's a magnificent story about how God sets us free. And, and the cool thing is you and I still get, a, get to do a performance. He still allows us to get to have, uh, to have a life. The cool thing about this freedom that, that Christ gives is that now we go out and we perform for the right reasons. We do the right thing for the right reasons now. Don't get me wrong. Just because you have been saved doesn't give you permission to just sort of sit back and say, hey, I'm good. No. Now the Spirit of God comes and lives within you, and now the Spirit of God compels you to love your neighbor, to serve those who are in need, to, to honor and respect your spouse to live a life of glory to the king above. So you still have a performance to do, but it's not in order to be saved, it's because you already are. It's because God has already taken care of it, and out of your love and your passion for him, you are compelled to live and to love well. You are compelled to tell the story now, you are compelled to get to know others so that they can hear your story, so that they can catch what's going on in the frame, so that they too might become God's followers and learn to live well too. Pray with me. Father God, we are overwhelmed at the notion that you would love us so much that you would give everything. That when there was no solution, you became the solution. When there was no remedy, you became the remedy. And you didn't do it from afar. You came close. In fact, you joined with us. You became a part of our humanity, taking on the sin. But only you could deal with it. So thank you, Father, for giving us life. Thank you for, by your grace, saving us. Thank you for making a way when there was no way. And Father, as you continue to bring people to yourself, may we continue to be people who tell the story over and over and over so that everyone might become part of who you are and part of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.